Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Semi Atola about Lebanon's ongoing economic collapse. Then, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about donor strategies in Lebanon. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Sami Atala is the founding director at the Policy Initiative. Before he founded the Policy Initiative in Beirut in 2021, he worked as the director of the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies from 2011 until 2020. Sami, welcome to Babel. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Lebanon has been in a financial crisis for more than three years. How did that happen? John, this has deep roots. In fact, all the way back to the end of the civil war. Since 1990, the political elite who took power after the political settlement, which is defined as a Ta'if agreement, planted the seeds of the financial crisis along two, maybe say, levels. The first one is when they're running the government, they had a public deficit in the budget, which means effectively that for many years, they're spending way more money than the government was able to collect. Once you have that, you need to actually borrow to actually cover the deficit. But not only that, they ran a trade deficit, which means Lebanon was importing way more than it's exporting, which means you're sending more of your scarce dollars outside the country than you're actually able to bring in the dollars into the country. Those two deficits, the twin deficits, forces any country in the world to attract capital from abroad to finance these deficits. The Lebanese government had to do that for many years. And by doing that, they've accumulated a lot of debt that became unsustainable to actually finance. The crisis blew up in the summer of 2019 when the Lebanese pound, which is fixed to the dollar, basically broke free from the 1,507 liras to the dollar. And the revolution that took part in 2019 basically erupted because of these problems that Lebanese governments and ruling political parties are responsible for because they failed to resolve the chronic problems that we were seeing since 1997. We saw how this is not going to bode well for Lebanon, but they were able to kick the can away. They were able to avoid the reforms. Lebanon had elections in May. No party was held accountable, what you might call the independent Candidates got about 10% of the vote. Voters in Lebanon returned most of the old political parties back to power. Why is that? The system is actually structured in a way that prevents accountability. At the end of the day, election is just one event whereby people have the chance to hold the politicians accountable, right? But that's actually theoretically because. At the end of the day, the electoral law that is put in place, the gerrymandering that happens, 
I actually argue, along with the electoral strategies used by political parties, in fact, it's the political parties that select their electorates rather than the electorates actually electing their representatives. Why is that? Because of the gerrymandering and the way they distribute the seats across Lebanon, the way they impose vote buying on the people, which some people who are particularly poor are very happy to receive it and sell their votes. We see the clientelism kicks in in terms of providing other services to people because the state, which the ruling parties have emptied out from its full role, they replace it by providing you know, their services or they take the state services and they give it to the people or to the constituency in the name of the leader, along with the sectarian discourse and other things, and we're happy to flesh it out. In fact, they remove the agency from the voter and the voter becomes, in fact, just a victim of a system where they're forced willingly some and some unwillingly, some have no choice, but to actually vote for the same political parties that got them into trouble, that in fact have impoverished them. So let me ask about the poverty. Lebanon's poverty rate has more than doubled. More than 80% of Lebanese now live in poverty. How does it look and feel to be in a formerly middle-class state where four out of five people are poor? The whole social fabric of the country has changed. And you're right. I mean, we had poverty of around 30% before the crisis. Now you actually walk in the streets of Beirut and Hamra and you see people asking for money. You're parking your car and people come to you asking for money and for help. You walk out of the supermarket and you see people asking for you to buy them food. This is how miserable the situation is. And in fact, this poverty is a result of, I would not say even mismanagement, of a criminal act by the ruling elite. And why do I say criminal? Because not only they mismanaged the finance of the countries, after the collapse, they pushed the cost of the crisis onto the people. And they actually protected the banking sector and the powerful few from bearing any responsibility for the, all the bad policies that they did, which led to people being impoverished in two ways. First, the devaluation of the currency and all the people who were making Lebanese pounds fell into poverty. And they even took their money in the banks, their deposits, their savings. So now not only you don't have a salary that you can actually live off, all the money that you have in the bank has been actually taken away from you by the banking sector, which blames the government. And the banking sector and the government are very much close to each other in terms of ownership. So Together, the government, and where the government means the ruling elite controlling the government, they've designed policies to protect the banks, to prevent the judiciary from preventing them from any lawsuits against the banks, whereby people were left off completely dispossessed of any money or any savings, pushing them into poverty or emigration. As we see, a lot of people are also leaving the country to find jobs elsewhere. And we see people holding up banks to get access to their own money. Absolutely. And it's a fascinating phenomenon because you see people now walking into a bank with a weapon to actually not rob the bank. In fact, to take their money from the bank that stole their money. Very interesting, right? None of the robbers came to take any other people's money. They came to take their own money. You know, this is unheard of 
ever where you see someone walking into a bank with a gun to get their money back by force because the bank stole their money. For people to do that, they're so desperate, not only desperate for the money, but they feel that the state hasn't done anything to protect them. Because had the state come up with a policy to prevent this from happening or to find an equitable solution to the problem where people feel that they will get their money back in some way or some form, that's not the case. So people are taking things into their own hands, which is also a very bad thing here because now you feel that people are taking actions, not for the public good in the sense of finding a common solution, right, to this financial crisis. So give me a sense of how this has affected your life. How do you get access to groceries? How do you get access to gasoline? How do you get access to your money in banks? And do you have to have a large amount of cash and dollars at home to get by? Absolutely, you do. In fact, I cannot go and get fuel for my car unless I have literally a stack of cash to pay. It's impossible. And every time I want to go to the market, it's the same way. And they don't take cards. You know, no one takes cards. Everyone wants cash because there's no belief in the system that this is actually working or that the supermarket, if they take your card, they're not so sure they're going to get their money from the banks. So the paying is obviously a problem. Obviously, the costs of the goods are much higher now. At one point, there were goods that we cannot buy anymore because they're not on the shelf. A year ago, we didn't even have power or energy. You know, we're talking about a country that runs on generators. So people were actually in the dark or paying a premium in the black market to actually get fuel just to get your car or generator running. So this has just been horrible for a country that was living in excess. Because since the 1990s, the way the economy was set up is that we were living beyond our means. We were importing so much and exporting very little as if there's no tomorrow. And this is the responsibility of the government and the central bank. They left that happening. They left the traders importing all sorts of goods at a cheaper price. At one point, you could even buy a French cheese at a cheaper price than the Lebanese one because they made it so. They made the system actually to favor the traders and the importers rather than the exporters and the manufacturers locally. At one point, John, the government was issuing treasury bills. It went as high as 37%. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine any government issuing T-bills at 37%? And the buyers of these T-bills are mostly banks. So they made a huge profit at the expense of the people because at the end of the day, these T-bills have to be paid back by taxpayers' money. So all of that, we've seen a series of policies that led a major redistribution over the years since 2019. This is another major wave of concentration of wealth to the very, very few while the people are struggling to pay their bills, to get food on the table, to educate their children and send them to access hospitals. Well, and this has been an acute shift. And what I keep struggling with is everything I know about political science suggests that people should either go to the polls or to the street to change a system that has taken so much from them so quickly, serving so few at the cost to so many. And in fact, we don't see large-scale protests. We don't see electoral behavior that changes the system. And from the outside, 
I just find that puzzling. We remember how the Arab Spring spread throughout the region, not because people had a discrete plan, but because people said what we're living with is intolerable. But you're mm -hmm. describing a situation that's intolerable, which goes on month after month after month. As you said, in a situation like this, you expect either people would elect the ruling political parties out of office or they go to the street. Concerning the first, we've already tackled that in one way or another, that the system is structured whereby the voters have no agency as a result of all these webs that actually constrain them from clientelism to confessionalism. And you end up with half of the population or half of the voters don't even actually vote or refuse to vote because there's a high level of apathy towards the ruling elite. The streets is interesting here because we did see major revolution taking place. And I would say the ruling elite was actually saved by the pandemic, which actually almost ended these revolutions. But also they use a lot of tactics to stop it in the sense of repression, threats, violence, whether directly or indirectly, either directly through the state military apparatus or through political party thugs. And as a result also of the port explosion, what you ended up with people emigrating. And the people who are emigrating are exiting the system. And you've got particularly middle class with the skills, the people who used to mobilize the people, who used to organize, you know, were forced out, were literally forced out of the country. That was sort of another factor which even undermined the possibility of revolting against the system. So you end up with the election doesn't really do it or hasn't done it. The street protest that actually provided a window of opportunity and it shook the whole establishment. They worked so hard to undermine it and people leaving is actually making it harder to actually pick it up again. So where does this go? How does this crisis end? This is a crisis that is not ending anytime soon. This is a crisis that has been in motion for three years, where we've seen no policy for change or reform. No capital control law that should have been one of the first things put in place to prevent capital leaving the country. We see no change on the bank restructuring. And Lebanon's elite have done such a great job to avoid reform. They've kicked the can away. They were lucky in many cases. The 2008 financial crisis brought a lot of money into Lebanon, which injected capital into the system and gave them a breathing space, right? But every time we move into a crisis before and after that, we're saved by other countries. For example, Lebanese elite would go to Paris and hold the Paris 1 or Paris 2 or Paris 3 conferences where they bring a lot of donors and countries that actually commit to pay and contribute to Lebanon's finances, right? And all that helped the political establishment to stay and stay put or stay in power. And the last one was instead conference in 2018, again, to help the political establishment. What's different now is that these conferences are no longer taking place until reforms happen. Lebanon is now in a really a major problem because there's no money coming in, no donors are giving money to Lebanon, and the central bank's reserves are dwindling, which means we have another maybe maximum a year whereby the central bank's reserves will be depleted, which means Lebanon can no longer essentially import anything unless we actually are able to borrow 
from most likely the IMF because no one is interested in lending Lebanon. But to borrow from the IMF, we need to do reforms, and they're refusing to do the reforms or pretending that they're doing the reforms particularly. They just passed the budget, for example, which is one of the requirements by the IMF. They passed it this Monday in September, nine months into the year. So they effectively passed the 2022 budget nine months after the whole year passed. But hey, they can go to the IMF now and say, we passed a meaningless budget, by the way, really. It has no bearing whatsoever on the macroeconomic finances because there's not even a macroeconomic framework or a vision how to get out of the mess. So you can see that what they will be doing now, they'll pretend they're going to do the reform. They will dilute the reforms to preserve their interests and hope they'll get the money from the IMF to actually be able to survive. Will the IMF buy that? I don't know. But what we see so far, there's no intention to really undertake any serious reforms so they can get the country out of the mess. And they're just buying time. And I would expect they'll dilute it in such a way to keep their own interests intact. But it sounds to me like the bigger picture is you don't think this situation is about to change anytime soon. The international community isn't poised to get change. The elites aren't poised to implement change. The public is not poised to demand change. And it sounds like everybody's just hunkering down. Nobody is tired enough to really lash out and say, this has to end. That's a reasonable way to sort of think about it because, yes, the elite, they're too busy now thinking about who's going to become the next president. They haven't even formed a government after the elections. The donors don't seem to be too interested unless this becomes a threat to them. And I'm thinking of the refugees, not only Syrian refugees, they're also worried about Lebanese who are actually risking their lives right now and taking boats in the dark in the middle of the sea to try to escape to Europe. This is unheard of, right? But that tells you the sort of act of desperation that people are willing to take just to avoid the misery they're facing. How would this play out? Could it snap at some point for a change to happen? It's hard to make a prediction on the outcome because I think there are attempts to still push for change by civil society organizations, by the people who are actually still here. To be realistic, the prospects are bleak. And I think what we need to do is to push for serious change rather than accept diluted change. And I think donors have a major role and responsibility here. And there's a lot of cases of corruption. And I think it's important that this is pursued seriously, whether in Lebanon or outside Lebanon. If the judiciary in other countries is opening up file cases, I think this is important to actually take it to its final conclusion, because there are a lot of these cases that I think they are still in motion, and I think it's important to see how far they go. But it remains that we need to hold our political establishment accountable to the misery they have caused to the people. We all have to act, and despite the difficulties of doing so, I think we should keep on pushing in one way or another to do that, and to educate and inform and organize locally to actually be able to cause change from the inside. So going back to the elections of the MPs and looking at the elections of syndicates and professional organizations, we see new blood, we see change happening under the radar that hasn't yet scaled up, but it's important also to take note of and to consider because essentially these are the seeds 
for a change in Lebanon at the end of the day. I mean, that's one metaphor is that you sort of nurture a seed and you grow it. Another metaphor would be that you have something that catalyzes a change. Some element is added, which creates a new mix and creates new outcomes. If there were going to be a catalyst, what do you think that catalyst might be to force the parties from getting out of their entrenched positions and moving toward a very different future? It's hard to predict what this catalyst ought or could be. However, once and if you have an organized, informed society or a group of people um, that are seeking change, they could very well take advantage of a catalyst to push for the change or to put a crack in the wall against the reforms. And hence, the question becomes is that Look, if you're unable to change today, what do you do? Do you just pack your bag and you leave? Or do you actually organize and work? And then once something, an opportunity is risen or some sort of a shock that happens or an opportunity takes place, you actually be able to leverage that for change. So I'm not betting on a catalyst coming anytime soon. I don't know if a catalyst will come soon, but I think it's important that we know if it does what we will do about it. What should we be pushing for? How do we actually also support organizations or even policymakers, decision makers who are able to reach power? In that sense, we're not betting on something that may or may not happen. We're working towards that change. And I think this will be augmented by a certain catalyst that takes place whereby I feel the people could be able to push for that And until then, we need to sort of continue our pursuit for change and be ready for that moment. Sami Atalla, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, John. Next, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about donor strategies in Lebanon and how they might change. In the interview, Dr. Atalla talked a lot about what's happening in Lebanon today. But he also talked about how donors are withholding funds to try to induce reforms from politicians. But what other tools besides holding funds do donors have to induce reforms in Lebanon? So I would think about this as a combination of carrots and sticks. And certainly the main carrot, um, as Dr. Atala said, is dangling uh, potential funds, which certainly they're in dire need of. But I think there are quite a lot of smaller things that they can offer as well. One of them is technical assistance. So as part of the problem with the brain drain in Lebanon, they're losing a lot of people who would actually be able to implement reforms. And so one of the things we've seen, particularly from European donors, is offering technical assistance to try and reduce the possibility that Lebanese politicians will say, oh, unfortunately, we're not able to do this. We don't have the capacity to, to do it. So I think that's part of it. Another carrot, I think, is on the international engagement piece. And the US in particular has been involved in uh, mediation efforts between Israel and Lebanon about the maritime border. I don't know to what extent that's directly linked to the reform agenda, but I think certainly these kinds of mediation efforts could be linked to reform efforts. 
But something that is probably needed at this point is for donors to wield sticks more forcefully as well, given just how unwilling politicians have been to conduct reforms. So sanctions is the obvious one there. The US has designated the former foreign minister and son-in-law of the president, Gibran Basile, under the Magnitsky Act. European states haven't yet followed suit with that, but I think that would be quite a serious development that would stop these Lebanese politicians from being able to go and have nice summer holidays on the French Riviera, which might be what it takes. But I think another one which Dr. Atala mentioned is the investigations and some of these corruption investigations that are playing out in European courts could be an important piece of this. We've seen that against Riyad Salami, the chair of the, the central bank in Lebanon. And I think more sort of using the, the power of international judiciaries could help there. And then one final sort of element of, of the stick pieces is really being changing the rhetoric and being more direct. Now, it's it's hard to see how much this would actually you know impact the behavior of, of Lebanese politicians. But we've seen the World Bank describe this crisis as a deliberate depression and, and certainly much sharper language coming out. And the degree to which being more direct about it and really placing blame where blame is due impacts behavior. But the reality, and it's an important reality, is that you have to pick your spots and you have to think about when do you have a situation of ripeness where an effort can really do something. And I think one of the challenges of Lebanon is I'm not sure anybody feels that we're in a position where things are about to change. Samyatullah said he didn't think we're in a position where things are about to change. And you don't want to use too many of your tools when you don't think they're really going to move things. So I think part of what's also going on in the international community, there are a lot of things that people can do. But the question, is this the time to turn up the heat? Or will using these tools now and not having an effect, meaning to get any kind of reaction, you're going to have to use extraordinary tools at some point in the future. So as Will says, there's a, there's a menu of things we can choose from, but there's also a question about when's the most appropriate time to start deploying those tools. I think what, what's happened certainly with the U.S. and France that we're very interested in pushing things forward about a year and a half ago are now saying, now's not the time to put a lot of focus on Lebanon because the Lebanese aren't quite ready to move yet. I think that brings up an interesting question as well, because I think when we talk about Lebanon, you hear a lot of donors, but is there a consensus among international donors about how to deal with Lebanon right now, or are there key differences that we're not talking about? Look, I think on the one hand, the U.S. and France are pretty much on the same page and have been on the same page. There has been a growing Gulf disconnect from Lebanon, a, a frustration that the Lebanese government is in the throes of Hezbollah and until they disgorge Hezbollah from the power structure, they're not going to play at all. Ultimately, is there a way that the U.S. could persuade the Gulf donors to come in to try to minimize the role of Hezbollah to have that be part of a, a more general trend, possibly. But I think that the principal 
places where Lebanon has been looking for help is from France and the U.S. on one side and the Gulf on the other. Neither one thinks that this is a particularly opportune time to mount an intervention. And I would add that while there might be consensus on the need to reform, I'm not sure that there is consensus on how to get there and how to bring that about. And certainly we see some donors still trying to work with the central government and push the central government to implement and lead these reforms. We see others who have largely given up with that approach and are trying to find ways to circumvent them, either going through civil society groups, aid groups, even to local government. So I think there's maybe a a difference in, in tactic there. And that's partly a result of constraints that different donors face as well. The World Bank, by definition, the way it operates is it it engages with client governments. And so it's required to engage directly with governments. That's not true of, of others who are able to work more directly with civil society. And then, of course, we see John brought up Hezbollah. The US cannot speak directly to Hezbollah. Some European donors can. And so I think there are different constraints on different donors, which do help shape their priorities and their tactics. But ultimately, almost everyone agrees that the only way to get out of this is serious reform. Speaking on that point, Dr. Atola said that donors don't really seem to be interested in Lebanon right now. And it seems like donors have a lot on their plates at the moment. So what do their other priorities seem to be? There's a lot of humanitarian assistance going both to Lebanese and to, to displaced Syrians throughout the region. On the macroeconomic reform efforts, there are big countries like Egypt that have more than 100 million people and are trying to move the system in a way that conforms with the orthodoxy of the IMF, the World Bank, and other organizations. Still the way to go. That's why Egypt doesn't have an IMF agreement. But the oddities of the Lebanese system, which Samiatullah talked about, aren't replicated anywhere else. I mean, what I had been hearing for years is that if you look at the math, the Lebanese system can't possibly work. And yet people kept putting money into the Lebanese system. And it's like a game of musical chairs. The music stops. And there are a lot of Lebanese who find they don't have a chair. Yeah. If we look at the U.S. for a moment... Firstly, we've talked about this many times that the United States is generally speaking trying to de-emphasize the Middle East and Lebanon certainly is the victim of that deprioritization. But we have actually seen the the Biden administration placing quite a lot of emphasis on, on some aspects of Lebanon. I mentioned earlier the maritime border negotiations with Israel and it seems like those might be coming close to an agreement. We've also seen some moves that the Biden administration has taken to try to increase regional integration, looking at gas pipeline deals that would connect Egypt with Lebanon and even connecting Syria. So while the U.S. might not have much to show for efforts to bring about serious reforms in Lebanon, there are other things that it has focused on. And to be fair, the United States just signed an agreement to give $1.5 billion a year to Jordan. So it's clear when you are cooperating and and doing the kinds of orthodox things the U.S. government wants you to do, there is money to support it. When you don't have any interest in that, you're not going to find any money. So thinking about the donors and their interests in Lebanon, talked with Dr. Atola about what a catalyst might be for internal change in Lebanon. 
But what might a catalyst be for making a change in external actors' approach to Lebanon? Well, I think things either get much better or much worse, right? I mean, you start to feel like things are really in motion. It could possibly be because you have a genuine reform movement that seems to be getting some traction that you want to support. And the other is the situation really falls apart. You have a humanitarian crisis and the bad guys seem to be ascendant. One of the ways that Lebanon's sectarian system persists is because sectarian parties are distributing aid. Whether it's Hezbollah in the south, whether it's Druze, Maronites, others becoming a funnel for necessary humanitarian support. You can certainly foresee a situation where militias are enforcing security and distributing food. That's not good for regional security. It's not good for Lebanon. I think that would create an impetus for international actors to say, we got to get militias off the streets and have some semblance of the government of Lebanon reestablishing control. I agree. On the security point, one uh, element of continued donor support has been to the LAF, the Lebanese Armed Forces. And I think a collapse of the Lebanese army could really bring about a change in approach and a, a more urgency. Also, some kind of flare up between Hezbollah and Israel would be an obvious one. But beyond a security change, I do think there's the potential for migrants and refugees to bring about more attention. And Dr. Atallah mentioned this. Unfortunately, we're seeing a trend of really increasing, uh, increasingly desperate attempts by Lebanese and Syrians to travel across the Mediterranean, either to Cyprus or beyond. But equally, I would say a sort of mass or widespread effort by the Lebanese government to forcibly return Syrian refugees could bring about kind of more serious donor attention. And, and we've seen, you know, many Lebanese politicians have threatened to do this. So far, they haven't actually done it on a major scale. But I think if they did, that might cause donors to turn towards those sticks that I mentioned earlier. To be sure, I think the, the likelihood of anybody's armed intervention in Lebanon is low. So if the militias really take over, I think Lebanon is going to have some very hard days ahead of it. But if there's some alternative to the militias, I think there'll be a lot of donor interest in boosting an alternative to the militias. There's a lot to think about. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.